Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 2nd of May, 2022, and this is episode 253. On this week's programme, I talk to historian Professor Matt Fitzpatrick, professor in the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University in Australia, about his research into the role and life of Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany during the Great War. Matt spoke to me from his office in Australia. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Sure. Well, I'm Professor of International History here in sunny Adelaide. Um, I originally hail from a little bit north of Sydney, a little town called Gosford. And um, as part of the, the schooling there, you, you may not credit it, but World War I is actually, well, when I was at school anyway, was the, was the core subject that all history students had to do. So we spent a fair bit of time when I was uh, a teenager looking at the ins and outs of um, World War I at a kind of a school boy level. But um, thereafter, I kind of uh, avoided more or less the history of World War I for, for some time, uh, looking at other aspects of, of European and, and German history in particular. And it's only recently, I suppose, I've come back to kind of getting a, having a sense really that uh, it's no use just talking about the causes of the war or the lead up to the war or alternatively the effects of the war, but also perhaps having a look at the course of the war um, is also a fairly important enterprise. So um, come full circle, I suppose, from school days in the First World War. Now, the Kaiser, we're going to talk about him. How do you get interested in the Kaiser? And then I wonder whether you could just sort of give us a brief outline of how historians and popular culture have viewed uh, Wilhelm II and his role during the First World War. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that no one was more surprised than me when I began looking at kind of the history of the monarchy, the German monarchy. I'd always seen myself more as a history from below or at least a kind of a social history sort of um, historian. But I started to try and get a sense of what the constitutional arrangements inside Imperial Germany consisted of. And it made sense to me that it's not just, um, I suppose, necessary to look at what the social democrats and the working classes were doing or what the liberals and the middle classes were doing, but also to get a sense of what, um, what was going on at the, at the pinnacle of, the, now, of this society. Now, it's fair to say that the role of the Kaiser remains an area of contention in both historiography and in, in the writing of history, but also in the, in the public mind. Um, in regard to, I suppose, the, the, the kind of the general public, there's a sense that... Um, Wilhelm II must have been incredibly important because Germany, in, again, the public mind was in some way a kind of a, a, an almost absolutist monarchy or alternatively he was um, the, the Kaiser was certainly a far more influential figure than, say, the two Kaisers that had come before him. Um, but in historiography, this impression is kind of split between those such as John Gruel, for example, who's argued very strenuously and in great detail that um, the Kaiser, I suppose, was in many ways the linchpin and the, and the central authority figure and, and decision maker in Imperial Germany. And others such as, um, I suppose, um, Christopher Clark, 
um, and, and, and others who have, um, Eva Guloy, for example, who have argued that in fact, we have to look elsewhere. And um, this controversy kind of ties in with a whole bunch of other controversies in, in German history that I won't go into in a lot of detail, but it suffice to say that the way in which Röhl sees um, the Kaiser um, dovetails very nicely with the, with the kind of the Fritz Fischer argument about uh, Germany's uh, so-called grasp for world power um, at the beginning of World War I. And whereas I suppose Christopher Clark's analysis and, and his view of the Kaiser sits a little better with ideas that the, the origins of the First World War uh, are a little more complicated than simply um, a matter of German foreign policy. So I came to this from the, the perspective of, uh, of somebody interested in how modern Germany was politically and socially constructed. And I've been sort of looking at these debates and trying to position myself uh, within them. So what was the constitutional power of the Kaiser when Wilhelm became Kaiser in 1888? And what sort of powers did he have in relation to uh, the German parliament and also the role of chancellor? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And it's one that I suppose uh, historians, again, have sort of puzzled over. And the, the if we were looking at, say, for example, Wilhelm the, Wilhelm I or or alternatively um, Wilhelm II's father, um, Friedrich, you would, you would have the impression that Germany was really a constitutional monarchy uh, in, the, in the mold of, if not Britain, then certainly somewhere such as the Netherlands or perhaps one of the Scandinavian countries, uh, and that it had less in, in, uh, in common with uh, Imperial Russia, for example. Um, many, again, John Röhr being amongst them, have, have sort of said, that, well, actually, no, he, Imperial Germany really is far more uh, monarchical than, than say, uh, than, than any of those other constitutional monarchies. If you look at what kind of constitutional role he plays, well, I suppose it's fair to say that um, really he does play the role of a constitutional monarch in domestic affairs in the sense that um, he opens parliament uh, and it is the role really of the chancellor and, and, the, um, and the, the, the secretaries uh, to look over the day-to-day -day running of um, of affairs. It is, of course, true that they are not uh, answerable, that these ministers, if you like, are not answerable to parliament. But nonetheless, the, the, the Reichstag plays a very, very important role um, and popular opinion indeed plays a very, very important role. So domestically speaking, the Kaiser usually, and there are, of course, exceptions to some of this, but usually plays a subordinate role to the rest of the, uh, of the, the mechanics of the, of the German state. When you look at the constitution, however, in terms of foreign policy, in particular military policy, the Kaiser does have a, an augmented role or at least the potential for an augmented role in the sense that um, it is up to the Kaiser, for example, to be the supreme commander of the, uh, the armed forces, in particular, and the Navy in the context. Now, to what extent did he use these? If you look at earlier examples prior to World War I, say if you take, for example, the Herero-Nama War, which was run um, by the military after the earlier setbacks experienced by the civilian administration there. You can see that actually the military and indeed the political figures surrounding the Kaiser start to wonder um, whether or not he's remotely interested in, in this war. He plays um, very little role in this and, in fact, he's dragged almost kicking and screaming to make uh, central decisions and he's very content to leave the prosecution of this war uh, in the hands of others. So there is a gap in some ways between the 
the the role of the Kaiser on paper and the role that he he played. One again, with exceptions being important. One exception to this, of course, is his role in um, or his interest in uh, the the development of the German Navy, where his his interests dovetail very neatly with that of of, of Tirpitz. But again, we can get a we can get in a bit of a muddle if we imagine that it is. Um, uh, Wilhelm II that is enabling Tirpitz um, rather than um, rather than Tirpitz and others surrounding him actually looking to uh, court the favour of the of the Kaiser who is deeply interested in naval affairs but in both naval affairs and, and in military affairs he's generally uh, in, in tactical terms um, generally sidelined in favour of others who do the more serious decision making and he's kept certainly in the loop as as the monarch um, um, usually is but he is not necessarily um, uh, heavily involved in in, um, in in making decisions uh, on a day-to-day basis. So what was his personality and character and how was this shaped by his upbringing? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I mean, Wilhelm II suffered from uh, being told, of course, from a very early age that he, he was extremely important, so from his entire um, age, uh, his, his entire life, he's, he's seen himself as, as pivotal to um, the uh, uh, the workings of Germany, and it's certainly the case that he was not seen and was indeed not educated by his um, military educators to be as liberal as his parents, um, who were seen in, by many German liberals as kind of the the, the great hope for a liberal Germany. Um, but that said, I mean, we can overplay this. Um, I think one of the problems perhaps for the early um, Kaiser Wilhelm II is that he comes to the throne um, perhaps too early because of his father's untimely death. Uh, but it's quite interesting in, in the early years of his reign, uh, for example, with his, in his showdown, for example, with, with Bismarck, it becomes apparent that he actually wants to play the role um, of a constitutional monarch in the sense that Bismarck is looking for a way to disenfranchise uh, social democrats in Germany and ultimately uh, Wilhelm II says that he's he's not going to be the Kaiser that dis- disenfranchises his citizens. Now, what would the late Kaiser have said about that? I'm sure he would have been much more keen to disenfranchise the Social Democrats, but certainly early on in his reign, um, he's not interested in becoming this kind of, if you like, reactionary monarch. Um, now, of course, he has a reputation for being extremely overbearing amongst many people who see him as trying to imprint himself upon uh, them in, in, in social gatherings and in other contexts. But on the other hand, he's also very quick to be hurt, particularly um, when he was publicly criticised. So if you look at things like the, the Daily Telegraph affair, for example, uh, where where his uh, discussion of German and British foreign policy to a British newspaper uh, turns into an enormous uh, uh, scandal in Germany, you can see he's, he is actually personally deeply wounded by this and he semi-retires from public life for a little while until he kind of regains his sense of self. And he, he is surprised uh, by criticism of him. Um, but it has to be said that that criticism is quite often justified. And um, because of his, you know, the, the words usually used to describe him are impetuous um, uh, and, you know, hot-tempered even in, in some instances. But because precisely because of these attributes, um, a number of kind of ways of working around the Kaiser um, becomes very important to those who are interested in making a far more predictable set of policies 
that, uh, that actually are the, the basis for, for Germany's foreign policy and indeed its domestic policy um, as well. So although he does see himself in a kind of grandiose light, um, on the other hand, he also is um, often corrected, um, often, if you like, even overruled in some ways um, by others when he is seen to be overstepping the mark. And how would you characterise his reign up to the outbreak of war from 1888? Yeah, I think that um, it wouldn't be too strong to call him a constitutional monarch, um, given, of course, that there is a, a that the constitutional monarchies exist upon a, a spectrum. Um, and it is fair to say that he was largely uninterested in um, affairs of day-to-day -day rule. Um, he was certainly quite diligent about reading the paperwork that was put in front of him. He also quite often wrote in the margins his impressions of day-to-day -day affairs there. Um, but quite often, firstly, the reports he, he receives are couched in certain ways uh, to elicit a certain response. So, for example, if it's, a, if it's something to do with foreign policy, um, a chancellor might write, um, some very unwise people think we should take course of action A, but it appears far more um, useful for uh, wiser heads to prevail and to undertake course B. Uh, and he would write in the margin, um, absolutely, to exclamation marks, and away he would go. So, um, so trying to kind of, if you like, preempt what his decisions would be um, becomes quite a skill, particularly for the chancellors, but also for the, the secretaries. Um, but in, in terms of what he actually did uh, quite often, I mean, his nickname was the Reisekaiser, which means the traveling emperor. Um, he had a special train when he zigzagged across Germany. He spent a lot of time on cruises in Scandinavia or cruises in the Mediterranean and um, was quite often unavailable for political duties, precisely too important that he um, have what he referred to as recuperative um, trips um, on, on his cruise ship or alternatively um, would go and, and, and spend time elsewhere inside of Germany. Um, but that said, uh, he took his role as Kaiser very seriously. And we, we have to be very clear that he did have, as we've um, already mentioned, he did have a very clear constitutional role to play as a counter-signatory of new laws. But I'm struggling to think of too many instances in which he, for example, used the veto he would refuse to sign a law that had been passed um, by the Reichstag and, and that had been um, signed by his chancellor. It's not a situation where you have him um, operating, say, like an American president and simply refusing to, or you know, vetoing legislation put towards him. So a constitutional monarch uh, inside a, a gradually liberalising, a gradually democratising uh, state. Now, we come to the outbreak of the First World War in August 1914. Now, what was the role of the Kaiser in the, the sort of decision-making chain that eventually leads to uh, war, if any? Well, and this is a really interesting um, question and very detailed, and I'll, I'll keep it very brief. Um, certainly, the first thing to say is he is, he is personally and deeply shocked uh, by the, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. I mean, as a, as a crowned head of Europe... Um, he knows only too well the dangers of, of assassins, and um, he, he has seen this before. He put he wanted to go to Egypt, but put that off because he was in danger of being assassinated there. So the assassination of of um, the Archduke really hits him quite deeply, um, which has actually some some policy implications. In his heart of hearts, he cannot believe that ultimately the 
that Tsar Nicholas II and the Russians will side with what he sees as the Serbian regicide. So if he thinks he thinks if push comes to shove, surely the Russians will uphold the monarchical principle, um, and surely that that Nicholas II and other uh, and and his ministers would accept the right of Austria-Hungary to um to in some way uh, uh, punish or if not punish and at least uh, keep, uh, uh, put back in, in in what he considered to be the rightful box um, the the increasingly independent Serbs. Um, now this of course means that he doesn't have a he doesn't understand the the, the intricacies of the geopolitics that, that surround him. He, he's got no real kind of grasp if you like of the seriousness of Serbia's desire to reshape the Balkans. He's really not um, aware of the depth of Russia's intention to not back down yet again in Balkan affairs after having done so um, on, on numerous occasions. Um, he's surprised, it's fair to say, that the Austrians are not going to accept the ultimatum um, that they send to the Serbs, um, and he is surprised that the Austrians don't consider um, what the Serbians send back as the end of the matter. He very famously writes, um, well, surely this is the end of any talk of war. The Serbs have um, um, have capitulated, um, which others have, as others have argued, they, they was a very uh, deftly answered um, uh, reply to the ultimatum, which was uh, which meant that it was looked like a, a kind of a, begr a begrudging acceptance, but of course was nothing uh, quite like that. But he also doesn't understand other things. For example, he doesn't understand France's determination to ensure that um, the Russians can keep Austria-Hungary and Germany in, in check. He doesn't, doesn't quite grasp that Britain is very keen to keep the, the architecture of the, of, the, um, of the Entente, the Triple Entente, in, um, in place. And that um, he doesn't quite grasp Russia's fear that all of the military resources that Austria-Hungary have, have got poised aimed at Serbia um, the, the Russian fear that these might actually be used to roll um, seamlessly in, into Russia itself. So in that sense, he, he's quite unrealistic in his sense of what's going to happen. Um, the other thing, of course, that people talk about when they talk about his role is the very famous Willy Nicky correspondence between himself and Tsar Nicholas II. And many people say, oh, look, this is clearly the monarchical principle in operation. You can see the two heads of state, you know, very much like Carl Schmitt said, when everything else falls away, the sovereign steps in and decides how things are going to, um, um, to operate and, 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 and how they should occur. But, of course, the thing to say, particularly in the case of um, Wilhelm II, is that what he writes to the Tsar is very carefully scripted. Uh, by the foreign office and 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 vetted by the by the military, and that in many ways he's he, he's a very um, useful shortcut um, in this very high pressure situation where time is of the essence. But he is not acting as an independent monarch here. He is clearly doing the bidding of um of the government too that that he feels he must support um, in this crisis. Um, he sounds at the very beginning of the crisis, prior to the war, as very belligerent and very kind of gung-ho about war. But as, cri as the crisis comes closer and closer, he becomes increasingly quiet about, about that until it ultimately um, becomes um, unavoidable. So he does play a role. It's an important role, but it is a role that is on the one hand scripted by others um, and a role that is largely 
um, not entirely across the, the intricacies of the geopolitics of the other players. And what was his role in shaping German military strategy and policy during the war? And I'm also thinking about his role in, uh, obviously, relation to Ludendorff and Hindenburg, who sort of, as they say, established an, uh, a near dictatorship from 1916. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the first instances where you see him trying pushing back and forth with the military is when he questions kind of Moltke's um, championing of the Schlieffen plan, even before hostilities break out, where he says, look, I think actually we can focus on the east and we don't need to focus so much on the west. This is when he still believes that, that France and Britain will be, could somehow be kept um, out of the war if, if war is indeed necessary. But eventually when, when um, events sort of overtake his point of view, the Kaiser really has to acquiesce to Moltke, the, the, the youngest planning. And thereafter, and particularly when, once the war starts, he effectively leaves military planning in the hands of his generals. And remember, as, as indeed he had done in the, in the Herero-Nama War in 1905, uh, where, he, where he leaves things uh, in the hands of his generals and less explicitly told that he constitutionally has to make um, a decision. Um, so it's very clear that um, in many ways he is overshadowed very early by um, uh, particularly Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Um, so to the extent, for example, that um, that he eventually, he, he tries to, to resist for a, a fair bit of time, but he eventually has to acquiesce to their demands that, um, that Falkenheim be replaced in 1916. And um, he also, um, in some ways, reluctantly um, has to come has to come to the table on the question of um, of unrestricted submarine warfare and, um, and and reluctantly comes to the to um, accept Tippett's understanding of, of, of the role there. Um, in many ways, he he very self consciously steps back from this and recognizes his inability to to actually run military affairs um, and run strategy. He had dallied with that prior to the war. Um, and many, many in the military had privately um, thought of it as a disastrous set of circumstances if he were to decide to really take seriously his role as supreme commander. But once the war starts, he steps back, back very quickly from that um, constitutionally available. And what's his role uh, relative to German domestic politics, uh, the Reichstag, but also in international politics and attempts to find uh, a peace, some form of peace? Yeah, he's... Um, uh, very famously important as a kind of a rallying point at, at, the, at the beginning of the war when he, um, his famous declaration, for example, that he no longer um, uh, I can see or identify Germans in terms of political parties, but rather he, he just sees only Germans. He sees Germans as a kind of a, a unified nation. Uh, this becomes a very important catch cry, uh, one that is you know, turned into also paraphernalia, particularly postcards. Um, but um, and and to some extent, there is a little bit of truth in that, in the sense that the Social Democrats would have been very kind of, if you like, uh, anti-war. There'd been an enormous demonstration in Berlin on days prior to the war. He, um, uh, but but once it seems to the um, to the Social Democrats that the, that the Russians have mobilised and in effect started the war, then the, the Social Democrats fall in lockstep and say, well, we need to. Um, uh, we, we need to defend our kind of, if you like, constitutional gains against um, a, a kind of autar, um, autocratic Russia. So this, but this, of course, Bergfried doesn't last forever. This kind of truce, this political truce doesn't last forever. And you see some kind of social democrats in particular start to be, become increasingly suspicious about 
the war effort. Um, but throughout the war, it's fair to say, I mean, that that he still remains overshadowed as, as if you like, again, the, the great heroes of the East, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, um, are seen as kind of the real figures um, that are championed, if you like, uh, in the German press. And he feels himself to be overshadowed by that. Um, there is, of course, as you mentioned, the, um, the December 1916 kind of peace offer. And he certainly, and the Kaiser is certainly able to position himself as an important figure as um, going the, the extra mile, if you like, for peace in, uh, in, in 1916. But it's fair to say, once again, that this is a, a role that has been um, offered to him. It's not that he kind of went out, extraordinarily went out of his own way to instigate peace talks, um, but rather was seen as, once again, this kind of important symbolic figurehead um, of German power. So um, I think a lot, probably a little bit too much has been made of the December 1916 peace offer in, in some ways, but uh, but nonetheless, I think it could probably, uh, I, I don't think it can be dismissed entirely as unimportant. Uh, the Kaiser plays a role in that, but once again, he plays a role that that is offered to him rather than one he he kind of stubbornly carves out uh, for him himself. So why does he abdicate in, abdicate in November 1918? Um, well, I mean, that's, I mean, did he? <laughs> I mean, he, the, the discussions of, um, of uh, surrounding how and why and, and, and he might abdicate were more or less still ongoing. He's, he's about, I, it looks like he's about to um, abdicate as emperor of Germany, but still remain as king of Prussia. Um, but he's effectively ambushed by both you know, Prince Max von Baden and Philip Scheidemann, who both say that, well, look, the Kaiser is abdicating and, and that Germany is now a republic. And um, so he doesn't really kind of get that moment, if you like, to sort of say something that, that might be remembered as a, as a grand gesture of abdication in favour of the people or anything like that. It, it rather, he, he's, he kind of gets wind of what's happened and rather meekly um, um, agrees that, yes, he has to abdicate and, and catches his train to the Netherlands. Um, so in many ways, the, the Kaiser is not really able to, to set the, the preconditions and the terms of his own abdication. Um, and, and all of the earlier negotiations trying to convince him to do so under certain um, uh, circumstances um, are more or less swept aside as the, uh, uh, as the German revolution gets underway and is in full. And what happens to him after the war? I know that there are attempts to, to try and prosecute him as a war criminal. Why did these fail? And what, what happened to him for the rest of his, his natural life? Yeah, well, I mean, he goes to the Netherlands, um, you know, and he can't even get across the border and in, in complete safety. He has to transfer into a car in case some revolutionaries are, are kind of in charge of the railways going across the border. He eventually gets there. He's in Hartsdun in, in um Amarongen in, in the Netherlands, and you're quite right, the side treaty does offer the stipulation that he be tried as a war criminal. Incidentally, one of the sticking points for the Germans uh, at Fessai, they're trying to trying to find a way to uh, ensure that he that he won't be um, prosecuted, but they, they, they are told in no uncertain terms that that's not a term that they can negotiate on. In fact, that they have no right to negotiate whatsoever. It's a complete um, um, capitulation, not a, not a negotiated peace. Um, and thereafter, there are attempts to, to have him extradited, but the Netherlands refuses to hand him over. Um, and it has been said that um, the, the Queen was, was very important. Queen of the Netherlands was very important in, in, in this role. Um, and it's fair to say that in, in Britain, 
despite the fact that the king would shed no tear for the now deposed Kaiser, but on the other hand doesn't want to create a, an international incident in an attempt to um, extricate him from, from the Netherlands. So instead of being tried as a war criminal, um, he stays, and I think, I mean, we, the, we could talk all day about whether or not, um, you know, he, he personally um, would could be tried as a war criminal, rather he would be tried in his capacity as the head of state of Germany as a war criminal. But um, instead he, he spends his time writing his largely exculpatory memoirs that should have been entitled something like Why I Did Everything Right and Everybody Else Let Me Down. But um, he spends other time, you know, he's chopping wood, He's being visited by, you know, German royalists who are on a pilgrimage to, to come and meet him. Um, and eventually, you know, he's, he's visited by the occasional Nazi as well. I mean, he's waiting, hoping that someone will, will be in a position to reinstate him, if not as um, emperor of Germany, then perhaps as king of Prussia. Um, and his children too, of course, are hoping that, that someday the monarchy might be restored in some fashion or another. But of course, um, as we know, the Nazis certainly have other plans for politics. And finally, where can people learn more about your research? Yeah, well, I mean, I have a new book, The, the Kaiser and the Colonies, Monarchy in the Age of Empire, and it's coming out with um, Oxford University Press this month. Um, and it looks kind of at the Kaiser's relationship with uh, with well, the Kaiser's role in, in German foreign policy, but also in particular in German colonial policy. Um, it also looks at uh, Germany's relationship with, with monarchs around the world um, and looks at the way in which, if you like, or the extent to which monarchy played a role, uh, not just in Europe, but uh, more broadly. So in some ways, uh, that would be the first place, first port of call for looking at, at my research, or alternatively, you can um, have a deeper dive into my website at the Flinders University um, website. Matt, thank you very much for your time. Very welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>